Let's get into the word. We are in an incredible portion of scripture. All of scripture is incredible, but some of them have special nuggets and special significance in this one for sure. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 as we are discussing Paul's radical transformation in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. We really do. I'm in awe of you. Your power to create the heavens and the earth. Your voice that is carried forward generation after generation, Lord. Your word that you've preserved for us. The big things in life, we praise you. The little things, even something so small, Lord. Is giving us, in my heart, those extra reminders about the freedom that we have in you as we worship you. So we're talking about the freedom that we have in you this morning through your word, Lord, and what it looks like in our lives, what it looks like in relationship with you. We're asking that you'd fill each one of us, our minds and our hearts and our spirits, with your Holy Spirit. Let us hear you today. Let us see you. Let us know you. Let us love you. Let us follow you, Lord, with all that we are, mind, soul, body, and strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we covered the first 10 verses here of Acts 9 a couple weeks ago before Christmas. And just by way of reminder, these important questions. So here you have Saul who it's already been told, we've been told that he is causing damage, destruction. He is arresting people, binding people, dragging them to trials, even to the point of murder. He is causing people to blaspheme the Almighty God based upon his rejection of Jesus as the Christ, And for him, based upon what he thinks is his zealous service to God. And as he's going to Damascus, Jesus reveals himself. Not just in vision, not just in dream, not just in voice. But Paul sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus. That vision that we have of, uh, from John in the first chapter of Revelation, that Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his magnificence and majesty. We don't get that out of this text, but in other texts as Paul is relating this story, he saw Jesus. And when Jesus confronts him, when Jesus reveals himself to Paul, he is confronting Paul. His mind, his actions, his heart, and he asks him this question, why? We talked about this last time. Often we're going to answer the questions that the Lord asks of us or other humans will ask us questions. Usually we're talking about real surface issues. When Jesus confronts us, usually he is asking us to go deep. He is asking us, son, daughter, open your heart to me. When God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where they are. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not because Jesus doesn't know the reason why. He's asking the questions of you. He asks the questions of characters throughout the word to expose not only ourselves and the reality of ourselves to ourselves, but ultimately he is attempting to expose himself and to reveal who he is in his nature, in his character, in all of his attributes, in his love, in his grace. This is what he is attempting to reveal to us daily. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we talked about again these two questions that, that Saul asks of Jesus. One, who are you, Lord? And this is so important that as we engage the Almighty God in relationship and thought and study and action, who is Jesus? And as he answers that in truth, through his word, it's out of that identification, it's out of that definition, that doctrine, that teaching of who he is, then it's, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today? What target do you want me to aim for? What direction do you have for me in my life? How, Lord, can I reconcile this relationship? 
How, Lord, can I be a blessing to others, Lord? How, Lord, can I love that person just like you love them? Based upon who Jesus is, then we move in action. So as we left Paul here at the end of these last couple of verses of 8, 9, 10 there of chapter 9, he, is being, he has just been exposed to Jesus in all of his glory. And Paul has been stripped down to this position of humility. He is blind. He has to be led by the hand. How humiliating and humbling that is. And as he enters this house in Damascus, he refuses himself water and food. So as he has just been confronted, not with just what he's doing in his behavior, his thought processes, his heart, as he has just been confronted with the God who created the heavens and the earth, he is left in this position of being undone. He is, for three days, we are being told that he is praying. This is his response, his self-denial, his death to self. This is going to be a, a cultural and religious practice that he would automatically gravitate to in the culture in which he was raised in regards to fasting. But often when God confronts us, here is something that is amiss. We would take great stock in the wisdom that we have here to hit pause on the rest of life and to deny yourself the, the pleasures of life, to fast and to seek God in prayer. God, what is it that you are attempting to do in me? What is it about you that you are attempting to reveal to me? What is it about my mind and my heart and my rebellion that you want to correct in me? And again, fasting is not about what we're not doing. The focus is in, it's all about turning our attention as much as we can in daily life. Lord, I'm listening and I'm in this position. And this is the position that we have Paul in. Self-denial, denying to self, prayer, worship, confession, repentance. We know all of this is going on in his life. Now picking up in verse 10. It says, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So here's this picture. Saul, again, in this house of Judas, assuming that Judas, obviously he is a Jew, but assuming that Judas would have been in the camp of Saul in regards to those who are persecuting those who are looking to Jesus in faith for salvation. Yes? I mean, probably this is the household and this is the context. And I guarantee over the last few days, Paul has been repeating the story of what happened. There were those that were there with Paul on the journey to Damascus. They saw light. 
They heard a voice. They didn't understand what the voice was saying, but they know something happened. They know who Paul was before that moment. And they're witnessing his blindness, his confusion, his tears, his repentance, his prayers, what's going on, what happened to you. You know that he's relating his testimony to these people. So as Paul is sitting in that scenario in this household, Ananias is in his own household. And we know nothing about this guy. But the snapshots that the word of God gives to us, I often find incredible because they not only help reveal to us maybe some hidden characters, attributes of the individuals in the Bible, but often he gives us little nuggets about himself. Ananias, Hananiah. His name means God, Yahweh, has dealt graciously. And Saul, his name means desired. So just again, Something to geek out on, something that's really fun is we're sitting in this story. We know nothing about Ananias. We don't know how he came to the Lord. We don't know how he came to Damascus. He's not a pastor. He's not a teacher. He's not an evangelist. He's not a prophet. He's not an apostle. He's just Ananias. Just an ordinary guy following Jesus his name-bearing testimony to the attribute of God, God has dealt with me graciously. And he comes to him in a vision. So God is speaking to, to Saul and his circumstance in a vision. He comes to Ananias and is speaking to him in a vision. And he's going to bring these two men together. It's going to provide that certainty of the action that God is performing in both of these men's life and in the church's life here in Damascus. Ananias, God has dealt graciously with me. Saul, God, is, God desires this man and all of his sin and all of his brokenness and all of his self-righteousness. God is looking at him saying, I love you, I have saved you, I am calling you, respond to me. And this is how, this is all the working that is going on behind the scenes. One of the contrasts that we want to give when Jesus shows up to Saul as an unbeliever, Saul's response to Jesus is, who are you, Lord? When he shows up to Ananias as a believer, what's Ananias' response to Jesus? Here I am, Lord. And so we see that in Samuel's life. We see that in Isaiah's life. We see that in so many characters throughout the word who are attending to God when they hear God's voice. Here I am, Lord. Speak. I'm open. My answer is yes before you even ask. Here am I, Lord. And then the Lord asks. Ananias, here's what I'm telling you to do. I need you to get up. And I need you to go, and I need you to find Judas' house on this street, and I need you to ask to see Saul of Tarsus. He has seen you come in a vision that he is going to receive his sight through you. You are just an ordinary guy. He is not some... He, you know, God didn't use Peter to do this so that there's some kind of apostolic succession of Peter had to lay his hands on Paul, just an ordinary guy in this circumstance. Ananias, here's what I am asking you to do. But Ananias has a problem, but he's asking God a question in faith, not in disobedience. So as we've just sat through Christmas and the Christmas narrative, when God sends Gabriel to Zechariah there and tells Zechariah that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby and they're going to name him John, what does Zechariah do? How, Lord? But he asks the question, how? In disbelief. He asks it in a position where he is not believing the Lord, he is not trusting the Lord, he is not receiving from the Lord what God wants to do. And it's asking the question of God in the position of unbelief. And I know all of us are guilty and have been guilty of questioning God from the position of no faith. The contrast is Mary. When Gabriel tells her about Jesus, 
how, Lord? I've never known a man before. Her question of how is asked from a position of faith, a position of, I'm receiving this, Lord, but I don't understand, so I'm asking questions of God in faith for more information. And that's the position of Ananias here. He understands what the Lord is telling him to do, but often, when God asks you to do something, does it well up within you any kind of fear, trepidation? I'm not sure about this. If I go and talk to this guy, I know all about Saul because many, not just one, not just two, we've had multiple people fleeing Jerusalem, coming into this community, bearing testimony about Saul in regards to the harm. It's literally the badness, the evil that he has done to your saints, to your holy ones in Jerusalem. I know about this guy, Lord. He's here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest us and to drag us back to Jerusalem. Anybody who's calling on your name. And there's, there's so much in here. Um, Peter in chapter 2 quotes out of Joel chapter 2 which says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And such a testimony in regards to the saints, the holy ones, talking about people who have called on the name of Jesus, and because they are the whosoevers that called on his name, they are saved, they are saints, they are in eternal relationship. And Saul's been doing damage to those people. A man's authority is nothing in comparison to Jesus' authority. Amen? Matthew chapter 28. What is Jesus as he is commissioning his apostles to go out into the world, to Jews, to Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom of God? What does he tell them? I have all authority. The authority of heaven the authority of earth. There is no king, there is no law, there is no man who has greater authority over you and your life than the one who created you. That's, a, that's something that we have to receive because there are many, governments have authority over us. We're gonna talk about suffering in a minute. The, the authority that man has over us can cause a tremendous amount of suffering. But here, in Ananias's faith in Jesus and his trust, Jesus doesn't take away his fears. He doesn't tell him that anything, um, he doesn't tell him any, you know, the consequences that are going to come into his life for being obedient in this. He just gives him his heart. Jesus gives to Ananias his heart. I want you to go because this man saw he's a chosen vessel of mine. This is a human being who I have chosen as a vessel. Some of your translations would say a chosen instrument. And which one's correct? Well, they both are. Because the, the idea of a vessel, it's, it's passive. God has created us to image him. God has created us in these bodies to be his temple, to be his house. He has poured himself into us. We are, we are to be containers in relationship, vessels created by him according to his will, his plans, his purposes. Passive, he is the one who has filled us. An instrument, though, more active. And again, in our relationship with him, there are passive attributes of in our relationship with the Lord, and there are very active areas in our life as chosen vessels and chosen instruments of Christ. So we talk about freedom. So a couple weeks ago, I titled the sermon Arrested because as, as Saul was confronted by Jesus, He's pretty, been pretty much put in time out. He's been arrested. And over these last few days and now in this scenario, we're watching freedom come about in his life. And I bring that idea up now because look at what Paul's calling is. And we can sit in his calling in identification here. The only thing that Jesus asks us to bear, to carry, 
in our relationship with him is his name. So even whoever wants to be his disciple, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow after him. That burden of the cross, it's not... It's not all the work that you need to do, the labor that you need to do. It's not heaping upon you all of these responsibilities. Jesus tells us to be yoked to him in relationship. What he asks us in freedom to stand up and to carry as a banner over our life and into other human beings' life is his name and his name only. It's not a church. It's not a doctrine. It's not a work. We are carrying Jesus. And again, it's not that we're holding Jesus up on our shoulders. Ultimately, he's the one that's carrying us. He is the one that is leading us. But Paul, in his commission here, in his calling, Jesus is giving to him, Saul, the only thing that you need to carry in your life is my name as I am sending you into the lives of Gentiles. I am going to send you into the lives of kings and judges, people who have positions of authority. And I'm going to send you into the lives of your brethren, your brothers and sisters of the nation of Israel. And the only thing you need to do, Paul, in this relationship is carry my name. Easy or hard? Hard, because look at the rest of this. Jesus is going to show to Saul how many things he must suffer for Jesus' namesake. And this whole idea of the things he must suffer, the things we must suffer, or these are the necessary bad experiences of life. What, is, what has been your greatest source of suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ? Has it been your health or has it been other human beings? Typically, suffering comes from human beings. Jesus, perfect, perfect obedience to his Father, perfect submission. Every place that he went, he went at the Spirit's leading, Everything that he taught, he taught with the full authority of his father. Everybody that he healed, all the demons that he cast out, every conversation that he had. Jesus tells us that he did all things according to the will of his father. But did Jesus suffer at the hands of human relationships? He suffered rejection. He suffered betrayal. He suffered ultimately the death on the cross, despising the shame for his relationship with us. We have caused his suffering. But as you follow Jesus, how many times in your obedience to God has it caused pain in somebody else's life? When you know that God is directing you to do something, he is directing you to say something, he is directing you to go somewhere, and you in love and willingness and submission, I am going to obey, maybe in fear, maybe in trepidation, maybe in faith, maybe in his strength, I'm going to do what the Lord is telling me to do, whatever that looks like, and other human beings have been offended at that. It has come at a cost in that relationship. This could be spousal. This could be parent-child. This could be friends. But because of your obedience, because of your submission, because of your love for who Jesus Christ is, suffering has come across your path. Paul, 2 Corinthians, gives us... uh, pretty tremendous list of what this suffering looked like in his life from the Jews. So he went to his brothers and sisters of the nation of Israel, proclaiming to them over and over and over again that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, is the Christ. From the Jews, five times he received 40 stripes minus one. So on five separate occasions, they whipped him 39 times. You have the physical pain that's going on there, but the physical pain is the result of relational pain. 
Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned, shipwrecked. Imagine spending a night and a day on the deep of the ocean. It says he was often in journeys, dangers though in this, in dangers of water, dangers of robbers, dangers from his own countrymen, the nation of Israel, dangers from the Gentiles. He was in danger in the city. He was danger out in the country. Perils in the sea, perils among false brethren. He was tired a lot. He didn't get his sleep on many occasions. It says sleeplessness often. Multiple times in his life. Again, this is all for the name of Jesus as he is following Jesus in the will of Christ, following him in the way he suffered hunger and thirst. He was in fastings often. He he knew what it was like to be cold and naked, not to have enough clothing to take away the chill of what's going on. It says, besides all these other things, the, the thing that came upon him daily was this deep concern, this anxiety that he had for all the churches. And again, it's not this burden that Jesus has placed on him. It's this, as he is carrying the name of Jesus into these communities, his, his heart for people is that they would be madly in love with Jesus and Jesus alone. The concern that comes out is when human beings, that they turn aside, they turn to false things, they turn to idols, they drift back into religion. These are the concerns that were coming upon him. And Paul's talking about, is he weak? Who is weak? And he says, and I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And do I not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, my sickness, my weakness, he says. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever and ever, knows that I am not lying in Damascus. The governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in this basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. I wanted to read this to you first before we read this scenario in Acts 9 because Paul lists out this experience at the end of his list of everything that he has suffered for the name of Jesus Christ's sake. And this is kind of like the capstone of a humbling and suffering experience for him. Am I cutting out? Better? There we go. I lost the signal. All right, so he uses this as, again, this this capstone example in the ways that he has suffered, in the ways that he has been weak. And again, in this letter to the Corinthians, he has to defend himself. Um, Just a lot of pain and suffering in this relationship with this congregation. In chapter 12, he leads into this this incredible revelation that Jesus gave to him. And he says, because the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, literally a stake in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded to the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So this is a testimony later on in his life here that Jesus communicated to him in the very beginning of his relationship. Paul, I have chosen you. I have called you. I have appointed you. What you need to pick up and to carry is my name and my name alone, my nature, my character, my kingdom, my gospel. And this is what you were to carry to Gentiles, to kings, and to the, and to the children of Israel. And know that there are many things in all the variety of those things in Saul's life and all those things in our lives and all the variety 
that we, it is necessary, there are necessary bad experiences that we are going to go through for the name of Jesus and for the name of Jesus alone. And here again, as Ananias comes, he comes in faith, calling Saul a brother, this relationship that we have in the body of Christ. You have to know that Ananias had a relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ where Saul was the direct cause of pain and he still enters to this man and he comes to this man, identifies him as a brother, lays his hand on him. Paul there receives his sight. Seems like his eyes were seared by the glory of Jesus. As he receives his sight, this flake, this scale comes off of his eye. We sit in this idea later on, Paul, this thorn in the flesh, it may be the trouble that he has with his eyes, seems to have this ongoing eye issue later on that may be the result of this experience. Again, that's all conjecture, we're not sure. But immediately, he gets up and he goes and he has himself immersed into water, identifying himself for all eternity with Jesus Christ, identifying himself with this community, the the body of Christ, and comes up a resurrected man, free. He receives food, he receives strength, spends some days in Damascus, And look at what Paul does with his freedom, the action of his liberty. Verse 20, immediately he preached, he proclaimed the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who call on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So Paul goes from the persecutor to the persecuted. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates by day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Again, this is why we went to 2 Corinthians first. Uh, seems like kind of no biggie here. This was a big event for Paul in his life and his walk with the Lord. Something that stood out in remembrance for sure. Verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. Did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, on the way. And that he, Jesus, had spoken to him, Saul. And how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed, debated against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So here we get this this testimony from his life of this immediate transformation. So again, the Lord knows who Saul is. He knew who he created him to be. God had been in control of his entire life, had been preparing this man to be his chosen vessel. As Saul responds to Jesus, as he sits in the reality of that, as he sits back in the word of God, and now he has seen Jesus revealed across the pages and the accounts of the Old Testament. Now he is going into the synagogue, so he's going to his brothers and sisters in their gatherings, and he's preaching that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. 
Again, even as Jesus proclaimed that he was the son of God, this was the source of persecution towards Jesus because Jesus calling himself the son of God, he is identifying himself as God and making himself equal to God. This is why the Jews were persecuting, they're persecuting Jesus for many reasons, but this became the overarching umbrella of kill Jesus because he declared himself to be the son of God. As Paul is going into the same communities, people with the same background, as he is preaching that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God, of course the persecution is going to come. As he is preaching it, the community is surprised. Isn't this guy the one that was destroying, making havoc, pillaging all those who are calling on the name of Jesus in Jerusalem for salvation? He came here for this exact same purpose, says that he is being strengthened, he is being enabled, he is becoming strong in his relationship with the Lord as he is experiencing Jesus day by day. That strength is increasing, that rejoicing is increasing. Remember, this is, he's still dealing with his flesh, his past, his prayers, his worship. All of this is going on in his life. He's confusing and bewildering and confounding the Jews that are there in Jerusalem. He is proving, this word literally means he is, he is taking who Jesus is. Here's the testimony that we know about this man. And everybody knows what he has been doing. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his teaching. We know what just happened in our culture. And he's taking the Old Testament and he's uniting them together. Proving. Proving. This man is the Christ that has been promised all the way from Genesis 3 through all of the prophets up until this day. This is he. They don't like it. They seek to kill him. So Saul finds himself in the position just like Jesus did, finds himself in that same position as Stephen did. Sense that irony that's there? We don't get it here, but in Galatians, as Paul's writing in the first chapter of Galatians, in this scene, while he's in Damascus, at some point he leaves Damascus and comes back, and there's a few-year period of time. So we don't know if this fleeing is, he leaves Damascus and he goes to Arabia, and then he comes back later on and then goes to Jerusalem, or... If he went to Arabia first and he's spending time with the Lord and then he comes back and he's preaching boldly, so we don't know the exact timing of this. But when he flees, he's fleeing persecution. Again, this is an event that stands out in his life many years down the road. When he comes to Jerusalem, they don't, people are afraid of him. I mean, that makes total sense. Remember, in chapter 8, it said that he was making havoc of the church in Jerusalem lingering pain, lingering suffering that he caused in the lives of the disciples that he is now united with. Love Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Again, he grabs Paul. He takes him. And from other passages, he has a one-on-one conversation with Peter. He talks to James also. They receive him into fellowship based upon the testimony of all that's gone on in his life. And the snapshot that I want you to see here in verse 29 says, He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and and disputed with the Hellenists. Back in chapter 6, says that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia. Those from Cilicia, this is Paul's home region of, of Tarsus. There is an assumption here that Paul was part of this synagogue of the freedmen. We can't guarantee this, but in all that goes on there, it seems to be that that would have been the community of the Jews that Paul was plugged into as he was in Jerusalem. And throwing a line into here as he's disputing with the Hellenists, more than likely, these are the same individuals that Stephen went to. 
More than likely, these are the same individuals that Paul had relationships with, he had friendships with. These are his, these are his brothers. These are the guys that he hung out with and that he knew in Jerusalem. So as he comes to this community, who did he go to? He went to his brothers. I found the Christ. I found salvation. I found life and immortality. I found the righteousness that comes from God, not the righteousness of my flesh. These people knew Paul, and they rejected him. But they didn't reject him. Who did they reject? They rejected Jesus. But did Paul suffer? Why? You know, he was a man in his self-righteousness and in his zeal for God, he rejected Jesus. He is a man who was confronted by Jesus and has been radically redeemed and transformed and filled with God. He is a man that is filled with love and that continued passion. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. As he goes back to this synagogue, he knows their hearts. He knows their arguments. He's been a part of it. He's going back to where he came from with the lifeline that every single one of those people need. And he's begging God in prayer and in action. This is where life comes from. Here's the kingdom of God. Here's grace. Here's mercy. Here's the salvation of Israel. And they reject him. And he suffers. And the, again, the... the the persecution that is coming to Paul is severe enough that the disciples in Jerusalem say, we need to get this guy out of here. They send him to Caesarea. From Caesarea, he goes on to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. Ten years. We call them the silent years because we don't know what happened in those ten years. But it's going to be ten years before we see Saul again, before Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. So we're going to see that in chapter 11 once we get there. This morning, this is where I want to end in a vision of what it means to be free. Not just free in our relationship with Jesus Christ right now. The freedom that we have to follow him in, even in the face of the trials and the suffering that come into our lives for his namesake. Again, this isn't dealing with our stupidity and our mistakes. But as we follow Jesus, there's going to be relationship suffering from intimate relationships and from strangers, from governments. All this occurs over time. But go ahead, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to make your way there. All is, well, we're not going to gain that teaching because we don't have that much time. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 40. It says, there are also, there's celestial bodies, bodies in heaven. There's terrestrial bodies, bodies on this earth. The glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So listen to this imagery. The one glory of the sun, right? The glory, it's, it's brightness. There's another glory of the moon. The sun is a source of light. It is much more glorious in comparison to the glory of the moon, which is glorious, but the moon only reflects light. As we look up into the sky, there's another glory of the stars in comparison to the sun and to the moon. From our vantage point, the glory of the stars is less, but some stars are brighter and others, they're different. They differ in glory. Saying all this to bring us to a teaching of the resurrection. To bring us to the teaching of the power of God in our lives, in relationship with him, in the freedom that he has given to us. So also is the resurrection from the dead. The body, it's sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, 
There is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man, being Adam, was of the earth. He was made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly, born from above, born again. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, in his sin, death, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, it cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, this is where we are aimed, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Jesus Christ. Him and him alone, the victory, the freedom, life, purpose. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Listen to this again, sitting in where we were in Acts, as Paul is encouraging this church of the Corinthians in his own life, called to Jesus, receives Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, appointed by him, sole responsibility, wherever you go, take my name, take my fragrance, take my word. I'm with you, my authority. I'm leading you. I love you. I've transformed you. Wherever you go, take me. And know that wherever you take me, you are gonna suffer in your relationships with other human beings. Because just as they rejected me, they will reject you. But here's your hope, your confident expectation of what is coming and what is now. You already have full victory over death and over sin today. You are free. There are no chains. Anything that you're struggling with, any sin, any emotion, personality, circumstance, whatever it may be, there's things that we take up and that we carry that he's telling you, I've only asking, I am only asking you to carry my name. Let it go. Trust him. Hope in him. Have faith in him. Understand the victory that's been provided today and the victory that's coming. Resurrection, all these words, incorruption, glory, power, spiritual, immortality, this one-of-a-kind salvation that only comes through his name. Therefore, listen to this again. My brothers and my sisters who are not only loved by me but are loved by the God who created you, be, this is a command, be steadfast in Jesus. Be immovable in Jesus. 
in your actions, always abound in the work of the Lord. Not burdensome as he is leading you, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The suffering that you suffer for Jesus' name's sake today is nothing in comparison to the glory that's a coming. Amen? All right, let's sing about his freedom. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we love you tremendously. I can't give you thanks enough for creating us. That reality, it overwhelms my soul, Lord, that in your knowledge of past, present, and future, in your knowledge of all of the sin and the darkness of humanity, all of our rebellion against you and your holiness, your nature, your character, all that you are, Lord, you still chose to create us. You knew that you were going to send your son to become one of us. You knew that your son was going to die this death, this shame, that he on the cross was going to have your full cup of wrath that is due to us poured out on him. That he and he alone is our substitute. The death that each one of us deserves to die, there he died for us. Again, the hope that you give to us in that, the life, the resurrection, or the yearning of our heart is for that day when we get to open up our eyes in that moment of change, in that moment of permanent forever transformation into the celestial spiritual body that you will provide in that day, Lord, we're gonna open up our eyes and we're gonna see you as you are. Without sin, in your perfect power, in your perfect righteousness, in your holiness, in your immeasurable glory, Let us see Jesus. Jesus, I'm asking for each one of us, please, Lord, reveal yourself to us. And come what may, Lord, keep us in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.